Hello world and welcome back to another rendition of our MLOps community meetups. Today we have a very special guest. We are joined by none other than Flavio Clesio, an ML engineer at MyHammer AG in Berlin and an MLOps savant to say the least. He blew me away with what we were talking about today and it's a lot of theory but a lot of practical application. So in the next hour, we talk about high stakes ML, risk assessment, latent conditions and active failures, Swiss cheese models. There's a little bit of everything. And if you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what any of that means. You're in luck because we're about to go over it right now. We're joined today by Flavio. And if you speak Portuguese, you have probably seen Flavio around in the machine learning communities that are going on in Brazil. There's a great machine learning Slack channel, Data Hackers, and Flavio is super active on there. And he reached out to us and said he could give a talk today or just have a chat with us. And before we jump into this high stakes ML that we came for, Flavio, I wanted to start off by getting a bit of background information from you. I know you're originally from Brazil. You're living in Berlin right now. Can you let us know how you made that transition and then also what got you into computers and what got you into machine learning? Yeah, so thanks for having me. Thanks for everyone for your time. Um, basically, my, my, uh, my background, it's a, kind of, it's a kind of accidental in terms of uh, how I ended up in machine learning. So I used to work uh, I was in the military services for seven years in a row, so I was corporal for a long, long time. And uh, after that, I completed my studies in the information systems. And after that, I started to work with several different technologies like SAP, Microsoft CRM, uh, CRM and so on. But I discovered that uh, data was, was, I mean, what was, I mean, for me was a brand new world, you know, like, I mean, this was, uh, 2000, 2011, 2012. And I started to make a transi transition. And after uh, this point of the time to work with the SAP, I work with uh, I work in, a, in a hedge fund so that I used to um, make some kind of uh, traditional business intelligence in, uh, in credit derivatives, exotic derivatives and so on. And during this period of time, I completed my master's degrees in computational intelligence that I used to and uh, to build some predictive models for um, uh, recovering uh, uh, credit assets, uh, bad credit, junk, junk bonds, and so on. And uh, after this point of the time, I started to work a little bit more with machine learning. This was in 2013, 2014. Uh, what I, I mean, I started with a, as a data scientist originally. And after some point of the time, I used to go to some talks and, um, and I saw that uh, at least in machine learning, we are going to have a, a very huge impact, you know, like it's kind of different from uh, traditional analytics, traditional BI that you're just doing some kind of reporting or talk about the past, but actually you're doing uh, uh, predictions. So especially about the future, of course, but uh, doing some kind of automatic decisions. So, and I saw that uh, after some, some small trips in Silicon Valley. And uh, since then I started to work with machine learning uh, full time, I mean, since 2015, 2016. And uh, I ended up here in Berlin uh, after receiving uh, one invite for a company here. 
and uh, to work as original as a, as a data engineer to give some kind of support for for a data science team. But after some point of time, of course, at my hammer, start a new project, uh, very greenfield project to uh, power their applications using machine learning. So basically, this is the, the whole trajectory. Cool. And can you let us know real quick what does my hammer do and what is your like day to day like? Yeah, exactly. My hammer is a marketplace that uh, that put together uh, tradesmen and uh, the consumers. So basically, we have several different uh, kind of services. Uh, since uh, if you, for example, damage your car and uh, you need to put some some uh, some repair and bumps, or for example, car carpentering services or plumbing or some kind of roofing services and so on. So we have more than two hundred thousand uh, to two hundred two hundred uh, different. Um, services uh, right now that we connect uh, tradesmen that uh, here in Germany uh, require some kind of special licenses uh, with with the with, uh, with the consumers. So, for example, if you have some kind of uh, problem in your pipe at your home, um, basically you just open a, a new job inside of my hammer, and some craftsmen are going to enter in contact with you to solve your problem. Basically, that. And uh, basically, right now in my hammer, as we are dealing in 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 marketplaces um, that that uh, connects two different sides um, of uh, of its supply and demand. Let's let's put it that way. Uh, we use a lot of uh, recommender systems, uh, matching, especially matching. And uh, right now, we are currently working in some some other. Uh, um, allocation models that uh, takes in consideration this kind of uh, stable marriage algorithm to make the allocations for all the S business out of the platform basically it's that and my daily my 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 work dates more it's i think it's 50 percent uh related with uh, machine learning operations like uh checking mo uh, models checking drift uh check if or metrics i mean special application metrics are are okay or not and uh, for the other 50% uh, of the time, I used to uh, develop new ideas to try to optimi optimize other, other parts of our marketplace, especially for the matching and recommendation. So basically it's that. Perfect. All right, so before we get into these um, Swiss cheese diagrams that you told me about before, what do you feel is the current state of machine learning systems? How do you see it right now and where we're at? Yeah, I think we are. I think we are in the in the, some kind of uh, turning point in terms of uh, the applications of machine learning that we have today, comparing with the past. And uh, seeing perspective uh, that I see that are some there's some kind of march of uh, regulation, very heavily regulation over the systems right now. So today I'm seeing that uh, there's tons of uh, new tools or new uh, um, platforms that you're that you, uh, machine learning is easier to do uh, than, for example, five years ago. So we have um, Dot Science, Databricks, several different platforms, Adomino, Neptune, and so on. But uh, we can see today that we still have this kind of uh, this lack of professionalism, not professionalism, but some kind of uh, amateurism in terms of how those uh, machine learning applications are, are 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 put in production right now. So and uh, and this, I mean, I, I make this conclusion based on on several different communities that I participate not only here in Germany, for of course, but some communities in Brazil and in Finland also because I have some some family there. 
and uh, it's super cool. Everyone is talking about machine learning, but when we discuss about, okay, uh, how are you putting this, this machine learning system in production right now? So, and, uh, and we can find this, the same problems like, no, we don't have a, a unified way to do some kind of unit testing, or we have a tons of good code inside of, inside of our code base. We don't have code review. And, um, and there's some, and uh, I, I put that in perspective with a, a very big march of regulation. So I, I wrote a piece about accountability and uh, accountability in machine learning systems that uh, at least here in Europe, uh, the most of regulators and governments are very well concerned about um, platforms doing decisions automatically. So it means that um, the era of uh, a single guy with the, with the same script inside of a machine, it's over. It's completely over right now. So if you're talking about some critical applications of machine learning, uh, no matter what, inference, classification, time series, and so on, uh, we are going to have, we need to have this, uh, this, uh, this workflow, this entire workflow completely um, in a more professional way like software engineering. I mean, uh, and I and I completely I completely believe that um, machine learning operations would be would be uh, would be the the, the the philosophy or or the field that are going to put down this kind of hype and and make the common ground with the regulators and all the stakeholders. Yeah, that's a great point, and it's really interesting you talk about regulations being a driving factor. So, I uh, I also <laughs> when we talked earlier, I thought it was super. <laughs> funny how you said there's a little bit of a lack of transparency when you look at different blog posts on MLOps right now, or you look at people explaining how they're putting things into production. Can you go into that a bit more in depth for us? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it, 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 it's kind of um, the way that I feel it's that most of the, the things that are uh, published right now in terms of machine learning uh, suffers a very huge uh, survivorship bias, you know, like uh, we just see the, the shiny stories like, okay, I implemented machine learning in my company and we earned uh, $2,000 uh, $2, per minute or something like that, or we, or we have the, the latest framework that solve all the problems of the universe, very shiny cases and so on. But as long as we just highlight these aspects, uh, one thing that I think for me it's missing is that um, what's the story of the guys that failed or what the stories of the guys that are, are right now in the trenches suffering to put some, some those systems in production right now? Because as we discussed before, uh, in, in a, for every winner that we have, big, big tech companies, Airbnb, Uber, and so on, we have a very big trail of, of guys that did not survive, you know, like some death march projects in machine learning or some kind of delusions with machine learning or teams that uh, were completely fired, for example, or, or, or machine learning systems that were replaced with, with the rules and some, some point, stuff like that. And uh, my point is that it's super cool to see those 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 posts in Hacker News or Medium blog posts or personal blog posts that okay so we put the system production so on but one thing that I think it's it bothers me and uh, it's related with this with the high stakes uh, machine learning talk that we are discussing right now it's that let's let's uh, study a little bit more about uh, the bad cases that the cases that fail or 
uh, how th those machine learning uh, 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 um, projects are suffering most, you know, in terms of deployment. So how, 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 looks, how looks like your deployment? How looks like your code review? How looks like your data or code management or experiment tracking, you know? So, and no one discuss about this. Everyone discuss only about this a very uh, uh, bright side of all those, all those new technologies. Of course, this is part of the hype, of course, but if you're talking about something that needs to take a little bit seriously in terms of put things in production that uh, can be uh, can be reliable in certain way, uh, we should discuss about the, the, the bad things also. So that's my that's the, the way that I feel. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that one. I mean, if we share our failures, then it gives an opportunity for everyone to learn from it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, at least for me, um, I mean, I, I, I just a quick uh, story in terms of how I suffer. So uh, in the beginning of, of my uh, of my uh, um, job at my hammer, I used to train a classifier uh, to do some kind of uh, text classification, very uh, bread and butter uh, in German. So, and uh, every time that we see some kind of NLP, so we see a lot of discussions, discussions between, uh, for example, Yeshua Benjo, between uh, Gary Marcos, Yule Khan, and we see, oh, okay, so those guys are almost solving NLP. But when you, when you go deep a little bit in terms of how the language are actually uh, written uh, in a very specific corpora, it's a completely different story. For example, one thing that no one told you, it's that, for example, when you see any kind of case of NLP, everyone uh, just go to, to see, to, to talk about, okay, so you guys need to uh, use the stop words and so on, so on. But for all, for us, for steaming or lemmalization, but in your case, using stop words, using lemmalization uh, decreases at least three, between three and 5% of our text classifier. And uh, we go deeply to investigate, it's because, for example, some words there are considered stop words in some packages like Spacey, for, for instance, or in LTK, for us are, are very, are very uh, um, specific words that can uh, differentiate some services. You know what I mean? So it's not like a, a very straight uh, forward uh, when we see this, those blog posts and so on. So that's, that's why I think it's, it's very important to share uh, your endeavors also in, in your journal. Perfect, of course. So pivoting a little bit, uh, we talked about having a high standard and um, a standard of reliability. And you told me that you feel the aviation industry is the one to look at in that sense. And can you explain why you said that? Yeah, exactly. So um, one thing, every time that we see some, some discussions about uh, site reliability engineering or, or stuff like that for software engineering, uh, we use it as a benchmark, for example, very big companies like Google, like Facebook, like um, Twitter, and so on. So it's super nice to, to, to check the, those stores of those guys. But uh, those guys are not a benchmark of reliability ever. So for instance, uh, for example, and, and, and aviation, uh, for example, last year we have 39 millions of, uh, of flights so during the, the 2019, for instance, and we had less than uh, 290 uh, uh, fatalities during the, this, the, uh, this, this whole year. And uh, if, we check, if we check the aviation industry, it's, uh, it's a case that 
as long as the aviation learns from the lessons of the bad things that occurred in the past, more reliable the aviation it is. So it means that we are talking about right now in systems, for example, one aircraft in systems that uh, critical systems needs to um, to have a chance in a 10 billion to fail. So that's where that's the level of reliability that we are talking about. Not, for example, uh, a company that, for example, has some kind of policy like uh, let's break stuff and move things and break stuff. Stuff like, it's not like that anymore. So, and especially when you need to uh, make some kind of nomadic decisions uh, that involves other human beings inside your platform. So you you cannot have this kind of uh, this kind of uh, mindset. So you need to uh, deliver uh, uh, reliability. And that's uh, and if I need to define ML ops in, in a single word for me, at least it's it's reliability. So make those platforms reliable, not only uh, in terms of the service level, but in terms of uh, track the, the, the several different artifacts of the data and the code also. Beautifully put. So <laughs> you, we wanted to talk about risk assessment today. And I mentioned before that you have this Swiss cheese model. Uh, can you get into what that is for us and, and how that plays out? Yeah, exactly. So um, the, the, the story, uh, the, the Swiss cheese model, it's a, it's a framework of a, a Cisco, uh, risk assessment uh, created by a guy called uh, James Rizzo in the early 90s. And basically the whole idea be, uh, behind of this framework is that um, for every system that we have, um, complex systems and accidents does not occur because one single factor. It occurs because at least six, not only six, but at least six different events that are causing some kind of chain of events. And, uh, the, and the, the point of the Swiss cheese is that for every uh, uh, barrier that you have, every defense layer, you can have holes. For example, uh, one, of, one of the layers can be, for example, uh, tech stack. Uh, and uh, this can be one layer of this cheese. Another layer can be people, for example. Another layer can be, for example, processes. And uh, for every one of these layers are, is a kind of a barrier of defense, a layer of defense of those systems. And the holes of this cheese, of, of this layer, so that's why I call it uh, Swiss cheese, it's some kind of uh, vulnerabilities that you have inside of each layer. So, and uh, those vulnerabilities can be uh, uh, um, uh, latent conditions and uh, active failures. And uh, for example, let's say that we have a layer of uh, tech stack, and one of of whole of this of this of this uh, layer of defense can be, for example, a framework that is not updated for the last two years. For example, some library. Uh, another layer, for example, processes can be uh, code review. So your company don't have a code review. So this is will be uh, one hole inside of this cheese. And uh, the last layer, for example, for instance, can be, for example, people. And uh, you have a very big uh, 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 skill depth for, for the people that are actually doing the code. And uh, for every event that you have in terms of outreach, it's not because of the skill of, for example, the last one of this skill uh, depth that this person would have, but it's because of the alignment of the several different layers that because some kind of uh, um, casual aspect get aligned. And uh, because of that, you have the, this kind of event. So basically, this is the, I mean, in the, 
in the very high level, the explanation in terms of the Swiss cheese model. Yeah, and I think it, it makes complete sense and it can be applied to any, um, any type of work. Uh, but how can we look at that within the machine learning context? I mean, I understand that you, you have these safeguards and ideally they're foolproof. But in reality, what you're left with is safeguards that have problems with them. And then you have the perfect storm one day and something makes its way all the way through each one of these safeguards. Uh, so how can we apply that to machine learning? Yeah, so uh, in terms of machine learning, so and uh, if we want to apply this, this model in terms of risk assessment, we can, we can divide between uh, two different aspects. First one, uh, uh, latent conditions, and the second one, active failures. Latent, con uh, latent conditions, it's that some kind of uh, conditions that are inside of your system or inside of the processes or inside of the people, for example, that it's not, a, it's not some kind of thing that, um, that uh, originates the failure itself, but some kind of dormant aspects that uh, maybe th this can, can lead to a very, a very, a very uh, uh, ugly road along, along the line. So putting this in simple terms, for example, I have this bottle in my hat right now, so, uh, in my hand right now. So basically this is a glass, uh, um, glass of water, for example. And if I put inside of my table right now, I have one dormant condition because this, uh, this uh, glass of water is not moving. There's no activity inside of this, this, uh, this bottle here. But if this uh, uh, glass of water here just, uh, for example, just lay down here at my, my table, for example, this can break it up my, my laptop. And in terms of machine learning, so transposing this for machine learning can be, for instance, for example, if you have a lack of code review. So uh, this is one, one dormant condition, so one latent conditions. Uh, one of the cases that I put in my blog post, so I will translate that for English in, uh, um, until the, the end of this week, it's for example, code review can be a very, a very uh, silly aspect to, to see that. But for example, one company called it uh, uh, Night Capital. In 2012, uh, due to a lack of process of code review, one developer put a code in production, uh, eight years outdated. So one code from, I think, uh, eight years outdated, I guess. And because of this, there's some kind of change of the logic inside this code. And due to that, this hedge fund, Night Capital, loses $172,000 per second per 45 minutes in a row. So it means that those guys lose more than $470,000 million of dollars due to some kind of call. Uh, of course, it's not only that, but this is one of the contributing factors. Another contributing factor, for example, can be uh, can be a lack of uh, uh, observability inside of inside of the platform. For for instance, so you don't have any kind of heart beating on your recommendation system. Let's put it that way, and uh, your recommendation systems are not recommending nothing at all, or just recommending the same thing over and over, uh, causing a bad experience for the for, for the, your customers. For example, so this is some some very few examples uh, of latent conditions in machine learning. In terms of active failures, active failures, it's, it's some kind of uh, um, action made by, by someone, for example, um, some system or human being, most of the time human beings, of course, that um, 
can be caused mostly by human factors. For example, skill debt, or for example, some code that was written that has tons of abstraction debt, for instance, or uh, you put some uh, tons of glue code inside of a code and, and then this is break some kind of data pipeline and then this can lead some kind of outrage or basically you don't put any kind of observability, not logging, not monitoring at all, for example. So this one of active failure. So when you let to do, uh, let to do things, you know, so this is, this is the main difference between these two concepts. And uh, this can be transposed as well for, for machine learning. Uh, if I may, I, I would like to just share one slide for whom are watching us right now, but I, I would describe for the guys that are uh, um, here and uh, hearing in the podcast. Perfect. So basically, Fuhudo doesn't uh, have the image right now. So I have, I, I'm presenting right now the Swiss cheese of one example of ultra Asian machine learning system that we have five different layers. So one layer, it's architecture engineering. Uh, another layer, it's a text tag. So this can be one defense layer. The third one, procedures. Uh, the fourth can be uh, engineering culture. And the last one, it's a people. And uh, what the outrage that I'm reflecting here, it's, 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 uh, it's a conjunction of several different factors that, for example, in terms of architecture, architecture engineering, uh, for example, the latent condition here was the lack of monitoring and alerts, for instance. Uh, in the layer of tech stack, we have uh, the whole in this layer, uh, for example, that ML libraries, for example, if you put some, for example, uh, Weka library, for example, that don't, doesn't have any kind of uh, uh, improvement or whatever for the last three or two years. Uh, the third layer is procedures and the, and the Latin factor here is that, uh, for example, this can be a mix of uh, active failure that uh, uh, glue code to do some kind of tech stack jungle when you have, for example, some uh, something being processed in bash script and uh, another part of pipeline is doing the Python and the third part it's, it's doing Scala, for example. So, and because of that, you, uh, you lack some kind of procedures to avoid this kind of uh, tech, uh, stack jungle. Uh, the next layer, it's about engineering culture that we have this, uh, the latent factor here, it's that lack of code or review culture. And the last one, it's the skill depth of uh, some people. So this would be some kind of active failure, for example. And, uh, and if we think a little bit deeper for every kind of uh, outrage that we have machine learning systems and, or outrage or in, in general, uh, it's not only because a single factor, it's because one alignment, a perfect storm between several different layers. And the whole point of mach uh, machine learning operations for me and MLOps for me, it's that to make those layers more robust uh, using tool, use, use tools and automation um, as well, for example. So this is, uh, this is one of the examples that we can transpose uh, for machine learning. Perfect. And I think now is a good chance for us to open up to the, the greater community here and see if there's any questions that anyone has. We'll take a second to pause and see if I, I see somebody talking right now in the chat. Tim, if you want to unmute yourself, you can go ahead and ask the question. Otherwise, I can, I can say it. So Tim was saying, he's asking, are you able to talk about um, 
resume driven development or sorry resume yeah Uh, yeah resume driven development yeah of course so this is one of the concepts I, I think I heard that in 2012 and some for some guy at Microsoft. It's that when some developers don't think about the architecture or the best solution for the company itself or the best solution for the application itself, but he thinks in the solution that can earn a, 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 a plus line in, in their in their in their resume. So let me uh, put some example of this. So at some point of the past, I used to I used to work with Spark, so to do uh, some machine learning in Spark, and basically one of the developers, th- those this guy are very uh, very good in Scala. So, and uh, but the problem is that the rest of the team used to work only Python. So it means that we had, for example, all this guy should adapt himself uh, to to Python. Or all older, all the other guys should uh, learn Python, for example. And uh, the consequence of that is that this guy made the whole uh, data processing pipeline in Scala and just uh, uh, delivering the mesh data for the data scientists. And uh, basically, this guy earned, for example, oh, okay, yeah, this guy just put in his resume or his LinkedIn something. Oh yeah, I used to do tons of data engineering in Scala. But for their sake that every time that some of those uh, data scientists or other data engineers that doesn't know Scala uh, needs to make some kind of maintenance in the, in the code base, for example, the whole maintenance took, for example, uh, um, uh, days or sprint, more than two or three sprints of 15 days, for example. Or most of the time, uh, the code itself was not, uh, was not uh, manageable at all. Another case, for example, was one, one, one guy that I, that I used to work in the past, for example, not I used to work with it directly, but it's some kind of side team or something like this, that this guy would like to uh, learn about Elixir, you know, like uh, Elixir, Elixir. So it's a very nice language. And basically uh, this guy put inside of the pipeline some uh, ATL2 that use Elixir that reads uh, spreadsheets from the Excel and uh, puts that inside of the inside of the database. So it's not it's it's not a bad thing, but uh, if you want to learn something, so take that for you or at least share this risk with your company and put the or or, or uh, all all the, uh, uh, the the aspects involved in that, or don't do that because otherwise, for example, when someone leaves the company, uh, the code base can be can be can be completely unmanageable at all. So this is one of the examples of uh, resume-driven development. Yeah, perfect. Thank you for that. Uh, it's it's basically prioritizing n- number one over the greater team. And you you talked about human. Um, basically, there's there's a lot of human factors that go into this. And can you go a bit deeper into that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the one of the one of the points that uh, I see several different companies uh, are doing a very bad communication in terms of what DevOps is or what machine learning is, it's just about uh, automation and remove the human factor on the loop. Uh, but I disagree with the vision with this vision because if we start to think deeply, everything in terms not only DevOps or machine learning for everything in terms of soft engineering, it's about the people itself. And why I'm telling that, it's that, for example, 
for you to include some kind of culture, culture of automation inside of your company, you need to have, for example, some kind of influence of your organization to do that. So you need to have the environment for that. And environment are made of people. So if you want to, for example, um, to do some kind of uh, uh, um, orchestration of your services using, for example, Mesos or Airflow or whatever, or dot science for for instance, uh, it's not about it's not about the tool itself. It's about okay, so the, the person that have this the knowledge to how to explore this tool, the maximum that can enhances uh, the whole process, the whole ML process inside of the company itself. It's not only for example, okay, so do the best script and that's over. So it's not like that. Everything is about it's about the human factors in the end of the day. So and uh, not only for example in terms of the skills. But in terms of the environment, in terms of the culture, so this is a very important. Uh, and uh, of course, for example, um, uh, um, supervision. For example, this can be this can be a very good example. Uh, for instance, if, if you, your team has some kind of, uh, if you, your team don't doesn't have some 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 kind of a decision maker, for example, in terms of stack. Like, okay, so let's decide, one example machine learning, let's decide right now uh, what's the tool that we are going to use to do some kind of text classification. So if we, we don't have the decision maker, so this can be some kind of holacracy uh, that everyone has an opinion and uh, this can lead, for example, some kind of chaos inside the team. And this can lead to a problem. So that even with the best tools uh, or all the automation that you want to have, uh, the human factor at the end of the day would be would be the, the difference between uh, the chaos and uh, in term and uh, in terms of uh, the reliability of your services. So there's no easy way out to get rid of humans, of, of course. Yeah, completely. Thanks for painting the picture on that one. And in the spirit of transparency, I'm wondering if you have a story about when something that you were working on or at a different company you've been at got through all of these holes in the Swiss cheese model. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is a very good, this is a very, uh, um, a good point. So, uh, one story is that, um, I mean, I cannot disclose the company and the, and the, the person involved, but I was directly involved in the team, but basically the problem was, uh, we, uh, the whole problem was we had one outreach inside of a platform, that we did not we did not recommend anything for our customers for 17 days in a row. So it means that all the customers that access the accessed or a recommended recommendation system got the same recommended the same services uh, or the same the same catalog uh, and over and over. So we and because of that we lose uh, I I don't know more than than tens of dozens of thousands of euros for sure uh, because of that. But this is one of the points. So this is the whole problem. And this is what happens. And, uh, and the one point that I include in my presentation is that, uh, and I think this is a very, very good thing. Uh, most people can, can, can think about this kind of latent factors or uh, uh, latent conditions or active failures, but some people can think, why not just fix the problem and move on? You know, like just fix the problem and, and move on. But the, the, prob the problem with this approach is that, for example, local fixes uh, in some point of the time sounds very good, sounds very productive, 
and uh, some companies have some kind of this concept of messiah, you know, like uh, the company interface is some kind of outreach and they recommend their systems or instead of your scoring a platform. And we have only the savior that are going to enter inside of the machine and solve the problem itself and so on. And this sounds good and, uh, and this is nice, but the problem is that it's not transparent. So what's the root cause uh, of this problem, you know? And uh, the problem that I faced, for example, was uh, we are we use uh, this uh, AWS ACS as um, as a container uh, tool for a container, but the problem is that uh, the application, as we make the refresh of the of um, of the applications of the items during some period of time, uh, due to some uh, due to some kind of increase of the size of the database. Uh, these containers got out of the memory. And because of that, we just use, and as we have this kind of promotion, so we just make the promotion after all the, 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 the objects being refreshed. So we stayed with the same old objects and over and over. And uh, the, the quick fix for that, it just increased the limit size, the, the memory limit, you know, like quite easy, super cool. So just double that and that's it. But if we go uh, um, through, so uh, uh, go through uh, this problem itself, it's not only this memory problem. So the problem was why we choose ACS uh, because was, for example, was a very bad uh, architecture decision. So we should go for another uh, another platform that we discussed, for example, Airflow and Kubernetes that give us to, to, for granted some kind of aspects in, the, in that kind of uh, of problem. But this is another story. But this is one of the, the problems. The second one, uh, the person that implemented this a a ACS uh, um, solution uh, did know how to work with the ACS before the project. So basically this was the, actually the case of resume-driven development. So the guy uh, just wanted to learn about this ECS uh, solution, just implemented that. And uh, the third factor is that uh, we had one increase in terms of, in terms of the volume of uh, of items, and uh, this this increase was bec was because some kind of market campaigns that we made, and uh, basically the people start to start to uh, increase their their demands for their demands for more products, and this is um, was a, some kind of uh, active failure that occurred in the process. Those process, for example, and the fifth aspect, for example, can be the lack of observability. So we did have, for example, in that time, we had uh, the application production, but we did have, for example, some heart beating to know some kind of uh, application performance monitoring, for example, to check if we have, if you are dealing with the refresh data. Uh, we did have, for example, logs uh, uh, to identify that. We didn't have any kind of uh, uh, alerts uh, to, uh, that, for example, can uh, measure, that have some kind of measure, for example, okay, the diversity of items um, being recommended, for example, this can be a matter that we can monitor. So, and if we go, if, if we just think in a very simple way, was only uh, uh, the out of memory error in the, ACS, in the ACS cluster. But as we can go deep, there are several different factors that align and, and created this perfect storm. And I think the main takeaway of this of this bad, very bad uh, situation that that occurred uh, to me, for example, is that um, 
we should have we should have a, a mindset not to uh, guard any problems or cultivate problems, but actually solve the problem. So instead to to be driven to uh, do only this kind of local fixes, you know, like a very random fixing stuff, uh, have some kind of uh, mentality of of uh, uh, continuous reform. You know, like see the the specs that are increasing the latent factors that can lead active failures. Uh, and the address then. So it can be by post-mortem, can be uh, inside of their sprint, no matter what. So, and the, the perfect analogy that I have for that is that uh, instead to, to keep uh, sweating uh, uh, against mosquitoes, you know, like if you have some kind of mosquito problem at your home, instead to kill uh, each mosquito once at a time, just go to the swamp and, uh, and, kill the, and uh, just destroy the swamp where they breed. So you're going to solve the problem. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That is a uh, it's a great use case and a great explanation to show us how this actually happens in the real world and what repercussions it can have. So I'm gonna open it up to the the greater community and see if there's any questions there. So uh, with all the challenges and risks and concepts addressed so far, can um, these can be found in, with software engineering. What new risks does machine learning bring to the table? That's a great question, Eduardo. Yeah, I think I think uh, Luke from the community uh, he he make a talk, very nice talk uh, about the ML ops and the manifesto uh, itself. I think there's there's some there's some other challenges, like for example, um, in terms of the, in terms of the utilization of the data. Um, here in Europe, I mean, this cannot be applied by guys from US or South America or other, or other continents. But here in Europe, for example, we are uh, ruled by GDPR, for example. And I think it's the, the Recital 71, I guess, that uh, regulates that uh, 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 the right of explanation. So every time that we make some kind of algorithm de uh, decision making for any, any platform that involves some kind of user, the user has the right to be to receive the explanation. So it means that, uh, for example, in the old traditional software engineering, uh, the thing that I just go to the, the ifs, no, see the rules, and then make the debugging and so on. But some uh, uh, data artifacts, some kind of machine learning models, for example, uh, cannot bring this kind of explainability for you, for example. Like, let, let's say that you're using some, some text classification using PyTorch, using VGG16 architecture and so on, you train for, I don't know, 5,000 euros in four, five or six GPUs, uh, uh, LinkedIn and so on. So you, you cannot explain that. So you cannot use that because if your company receives some kind of inquiry to, uh, for this kind of right explanation, for instance, you're unable to do this. So this is one of the, this is one of the big challenges. Uh, the second point, I guess, I think it's the, um, I think outside, I, I think, I think this is a, this is a part of the fault of the, of the culture of the data science, data science that we see today is that there's tons of very little hacks, uh, very tons of shortcuts and shortcuts in terms of the way that things are done, uh, especially in production. And we are just putting these things in, in place and doing automatic decisions on top of that. But uh, for example, and because of this very uh, 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 hacking culture or not 
very well qualified in terms of software engineering and practices. And for instance, uh, we can let happen, for example, uh, mistakes like the uh, night capital, the, as I told, for example, some code going to production without the code review. So, and this is very common in, in the places that uh, the machine learning operations are, are, uh, are run by guys that don't have any kind of background in, in, in the software engineering, for instance. Another challenge, for example, um, bias. So if your algorithm uh, do some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, a decision that takes in consideration some structural bias, for example, race, for example, sex, uh, gender, for example, sex, gender, um, or for instance, uh, religion, for example. So your company can be scrutinized by public opinion because of that. Um, and so on, so on, so on. So I think this is the need, basically this is the, would be the, the biggest challenge for that machine learning uh, um, uh, systems are bringing to the table. And on top of that, we are having, we are having right now at this, at this time that we are speaking right now, several different bodies, bodies of, of legislators, of congressmen, congresswomen, uh, trying to figure out how to regulate those systems because um, one thing it's that when we talk about, for example, some kind of scoring uh, script, some script that do some kind of scoring that it's not related with this business itself, or some kind of recommendations in the very uh, item item based or something like this. But another thing is when you do some kind of real scoring that you have people doing critical decisions or crit critical decisions being made by some algorithm for that defines the future of someone. Uh, for example, one single example of this, for example, YouTube that uh, do some kind of uh, problems in terms of uh, radicalization, let's, let's put that way. Uh, the company was completely scrutinized. So your, your company is prepared to, the, to, to that, for example? Uh, if yes, so you can continue using that. If not, for example, you should be concerned about this, uh, uh, this new challenge of, of this, um, that machine learning uh, problems bring to the tables right now for the companies. Yeah, totally. And, and yeah, dealing with data is a, it's a tricky subject. It's a, so um if anyone else has any other questions i got one last one it looks like we're almost finished up uh, but if someone else i want to open it up to to the field in case someone has a question because i know i've been talking a lot i'm just i'm wondering you've painted this picture for us do you feel there are tools that can help to make things easier for you and how would you recommend using them yeah, absolutely. So I will I will share with the guys that are actually uh, um, watching right now. But I will tell for the guys that are only listening. So basically, if I need to uh, to define on some tools that can help in terms of machine learning operations, I can define in the, in the five different aspects: uh, orchestration, so the way that you coordinate your data flows, or uh, the way that things are processed. The process inside of a machine learning pipeline or the way that you coordinate your training and your data at the same time that uh, we can, for example, Airflow, uh, Apache Mesos, we do that, or Kubeflow, that it's a very great tool to do this. Observability, so in terms of how to, how to keep these traces, uh, logs, monitoring, so I recommend uh, for sure uh, Elasticsearch, uh, Kibana, Prometheus. So Prometheus is a very, I think they are developing some, some new tools for machine learning, I guess. 
uh, Grafana, Sentry for error uh, um, uh, tracing and so on, Fluidpeed, Datadog, for what Datadog it's more related with, uh, with the systems itself, so uh, system metrics. Uh, but you can adapt uh, some metrics that you can use as uh, application performance management, for, for instance, like uh, diversity of items in some kind of recommender systems. Another point it's uh, in terms of experiment experiment management. So this is one of the big this is one of the topics that is completely different from the from the soft engineering. And uh, mostly of the data science community are not talking at all. So how to make the, the experiments reproducible, for, for instance, and how you can track that. So uh, let's say that if you need to do some kind of holdback in the model right now, so how you're going to do this, or if you need to retrain your, your, your model, for, for instance. So, and we have some tools for to do that. For example, ModelChimp, uh, Forge, Datmo, Studio, Studio Mail, Sacred, MLflow, and Polexical, for example, it's it's one example. Uh, some some examples of this uh, machine learning experiment uh, management. Yeah, and if anybody wants to dive deeper into that, the experiment management, the first talk that we did for the ML Ops community, Luke goes into that in depth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another topic that I mean, as Luke told in the, in one of his talks, it's a completely different uh, topic from, for example, for the software engineering and from infrastructure. Of course, it's data versioning and uh, data management. For example, that because uh, right now the ways that we do that, I mean, most of the time someone just cut some 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 data set and. Uh, freeze the data set and uh, push some kind of S3 and uh, someone needs to recall the S3 link to download the data and run the experiments. Or if if the, the, the company just uh, have this concern because um, most of the time people don't have this kind of concern at all. And uh, there are some tools to make this kind of data versioning like DVC, like Apache Derm and Snorkel. For example, Snorkel is more about the data labeling, but um, you, you can use to do some kind of uh, uh, data management in terms of in terms of the labeling of your data and uh, least but not <laughs> less important it's the we have right now several different uh, machine learning uh, uh, software as a service that basically can do some kind of uh, um, applications end-to-end -end, some since uh, fetch the data from your uh, database or your s3 bucket or Google Cloud Services bucked with your data, for example, BigQuery, for instance, until the model being production uh, that uh, you have your REST API with, without uh, the observability, for example, logs, monitoring, and so on. So some examples of that can be, for example, uh, .science.io, for example, Databricks, Algorithmia, Google AI Platform, SageMaker, uh, .science also, uh, uh, Domino AI, Weights and Biases, um, Gradient, Paperspace, uh, A2O AI, and Neptune AI, just to, to comment, of course, to say in a very uh, few examples. So we have, we have and, and again, if in, this is a very great, uh, great time to be inside of the machine learning operations, at least in terms of tooling, because uh, at the time that we see there, there's, there's some tools that we can actually uh, do the job. At the same time, I see that uh, 
People of, of the DevOps are not aware of this of these tools. People of, of data science are not aware of these tools. People of infrastructure are not aware of these tools itself. So, and uh, I think it's a very great opportunity for everyone that are actually currently working machine learning to go to machine learning operations. Uh, because again, it's not about to put things in production anymore. So this era, I think it's over. Right now, how to put things in production and how make this uh, applications uh, reliable and uh, traceable and um, and yeah, so I, I think this is this is the, are the tools that can make the help from that in that in that task. Completely. And one last question from Jay here in the chat. He's asking what your opinion on workflow engines is uh, replacing. Airflow or replacing something like Airflow? Do you have any experience with that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, not replacing Airflow itself, but uh, I replaced Jenkins through the Airflow uh, because basically um, this is one of the cases of data integration. So I don't, I don't know if you have, we have more time, but I, I will, I will talk anyways. So basically, we used to make all the orchestration inside of the Jenkins. So basically, it was uh, some kind of bash script that uh, run some SQL that uh, extract the data from the database, open the connection of the database, dump the data in some kind of CSV file and then push the CS file to the S3, for example. And uh, Jenkins, there are some problems in terms of orchestration, how to make this pipeline, uh, um, make this kind of uh, uh, dependency tree along the, along the, along the steps. And then the second, uh, the pipelines of the Jenkins are not so uh, transparent for us in terms of, of, uh, of code. So we just put inside the Jenkins, they just uh, pray to, 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 to work. And uh, if something goes bad, we don't know, for example, which processes are, 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 are in jeopardizing because of, of the error inside of Jenkins. And we move to the airflow. I think in terms of orchestration, I don't have much to complain about Airflow. I think it's a very good tool to do this. But my concerns about the Airflow, I think Airflow it's too much over-engineered in terms of in terms of simple things that you can do. I mean, you used to, a small disclaimer, I used to work with the Microsoft uh, um, stack for a long, long time in my career. And for example, some things that are, are completely transparent and uh, super easy to do, for example, in the SQL agents, for example, just to schedule a job in some period of time and uh, put this job in, uh, in the code, for example, and then, and then make sure that this job are, are going to run. Um, Airflow with their, uh, uh, especially their database connections are quite hacky in some way. And uh, especially if you're using with the salary, a salary executor, uh, you cannot do some kind of some kind of uh, real orchestration. Just as, uh, for example, spin up several different uh, processes at the same time and uh, hope then to execute in parallel. So we, we have some some problems on that, especially if you're using with the Kubernetes. But um, but I mean, just to to make more clear my point, I mean, I like Airflow, but I think Airflow is a quite over engineering that aspect. So I recommend I recommend for sure to use the Airflow, but using very straightforward DAGs, you know, like if you need to use several different connectors, or if you have a very complex uh, dependence tree in terms of in terms of orchestration, so maybe you can you can find some hassle to to use Airflow. Great. Well, 
looks like that's all we got for today. Flavio, big thank you. We will see you all later. Have a great day or night wherever you are in this world. Thank you for listening. Take care.